The way ahead. Where does it lead? That's what this young couple is wondering. A short time ago, they were in a relocation center. Now they're in the Middle West, renewing their touch with the world they left a year earlier. The War Relocation Authority ran the 10 camps where Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II. In 1943, the WRA began encouraging the prisoners who were deemed loyal to leave. Jim Carisu was a clerk in Madeira, California before evacuation. He spent a few months at the Jerome Center and has since been learning the candy-making trade in this big, nationally known plant. The country was still at war and Japanese Americans were still barred from the West Coast. But this WRA film urged them to seek a new life in other parts of the country. And here's a boy who always liked the printing trade, but never had an opportunity to work at it until after he lived for a while in a relocation center and came out to take a job as a helper pressman. The government hoped that the Japanese Americans who were released from camp would disperse across the country for good. Some prisoners were reluctant to resettle in a new town. This film tried to give them a little push. It's a big moment when you start to pack for your trip outside. It's an even bigger moment when you walk through the gate for the last time and present your pass to the guard for the last time and take a look at the barbed wire fence for the last time. Your friends as they board the bus to leave the center are going to new experiences and to a better way of living. Some Japanese Americans leapt at the chance to leave camp for points east. Others waited until they were allowed to move back to the west coast. That wouldn't be until 1945. But wherever they went, resettling after camp was hard, sometimes even harder than being sent there. Everybody had it so tough. Everything was gone. Everything was gone. When we left the camp, I don't know who it was that told us not to speak Japanese in public. There were some shots fired into our home. I remember going to the golf ball games to watch him play, and the opponents would say, kill the Jap, kill the Jap. I don't know why. I just kept looking over my shoulder. When I went to work for one company, the supervisor there went around telling everybody, how would you like to work with a Jap boy? From APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066. It's a podcast about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Pat Suzuki. Roughly 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were imprisoned in camps at the start of the war. And almost from the beginning, some were allowed to leave. College-age students were sent to schools outside the exclusion zones. Farm laborers were recruited to harvest crops. In 1943, even more prisoners were allowed out. These were people the government decided it could trust based on a loyalty questionnaire. Roy Ebihara's family was the first one to leave Topaz, an incarceration camp in Utah. It was June 1943. 
The war was raging. It was at its peak almost, you know. When Japanese-American families moved out of incarceration camps, it was common for one or two of the members to leave ahead of the rest. Once they were established, they'd send for the others. And that's what Roy's family did. His older sister and brother left first, along with their father. Their destination? Cleveland, Ohio. They skipped a meal a day so that they can provide for us financially. Roy was 10 years old when he and the rest of the Ebihara family left Topaz for Cleveland. Roy's family knew it could be dangerous to look like the enemy America was still fighting abroad, so they were cautious. Well, we were Chinese. What Roy means is that his family passed as Chinese the first year they lived in Cleveland. Until more and more and more Japanese families came out of camps, and then we no longer have to do that. You know, in numbers, there's strength, you know, that's the way it was. Roy says the people in Cleveland were actually pretty welcoming. He'd never heard of any hate crimes. I, I think we also knew that we had a job to do, and we, and our parents even had supper table would say, you've got to do your utmost to prove that you're a worthy American, you're a better American than your counterparts out there, you know, so that was what we had to do. Many Japanese Americans got a rougher welcome when they got out. Yoshimi Matsuura was eager to leave camp. He was 24 years old and incarcerated at Gila River in Arizona. He was also newly married. In 1943, recruiters for the National Youth Administration came to the Gila River camp. The NYA was a Depression-era program that operated across the country. It trained men and placed them in jobs. The recruiters offered to send Yoshimi to Minnesota. So I signed up. I went back and told my wife that I signed up to go to NYA Training Center in Shakopee, Minnesota. And she said, where's that? I said, I don't know. (laughs) When Yoshimi got to the training center near Minneapolis, he wasn't the only Japanese-American. He met scores of them who had been recruited from other camps. They were Nisei the Japanese term for the first generation born in the U.S. Plenty of Caucasian recruits were there as well. On the first day, a Monday, everyone registered for training. And Monday noon, they called us all, all the Niseis in, and told us outright that as of noon today, your enrollment here is terminated, period. That's it. We couldn't believe it. We were recruited, and we just got there, and... um, Now they're saying we're terminated. Yoshimi never found out why he and the other Nisei were suddenly kicked out of the program. He just knew he was stranded. Where do we go? We're in a strange place. Uh, What do we do? Yoshimi hopped a bus to Minneapolis and found a room in a boarding house. After some footwork, he was able to get a job as a janitor. Later, he worked in a factory. At that point, Yoshimi was earning enough money to rent his own apartment and send for his wife, but that, too, was a challenge. A lady who owned the place where I was room and boarding, she says, well, around the corner here is a duplex, upper floor, 
go over there and check it out. So I went over there and this lady looked at me, a big blonde lady, and she just told me, I'm not renting to a Jap. She spit in my face. So I walked away and uh, went back to my, uh, my room. As I walked into the house, uh, Mrs. Nagel was a lady. She says, well, how did it go? And I said, I didn't get it. I didn't want to tell her because I know her. She would go with her and raise holy heck. I didn't tell anybody what happened. I didn't even tell my family. Even my wife didn't tell her until years later. Uh, humiliation, it just, uh, it was terrible. Stories like this got back to the Japanese Americans who were still in the camps. It contributed to the prisoners' sense that life outside camp could be dangerous. Peggy Nishimura Bain was incarcerated at Minidoka in Idaho. Peggy was divorced, but her teenage daughter was with her. Some of Peggy's siblings had already left camp and settled in Chicago. They pleaded with her to join them. Peggy didn't want to go. I was afraid for one thing. You know, you don't have any money and you don't have no experience. You working in a strange city. In the first place, I didn't like cities. Peggy's daughter, Pat, begged to move to Chicago. Peggy eventually gave in. Well, Pat was all excited and got on the train, and and the young people were singing the Chattanooga Choo Choo and all that, and they were just having a grand time. Peggy was not, and things were no better when they arrived in Chicago. One of her sisters met Peggy and Pat at the train station, but she had no room for them in her apartment. Peggy went to the local branch of the War Relocation Authority for assistance. The agency had offices across the country to help Japanese Americans resettle when they left camp. Peggy found the help was limited. Well, they gave me addresses, go here and go there. And my daughter and I walked and walked and walked. We walked all day long. And everywhere we went, there, there would be a for rent sign. When we'd get there, they'd say, oh, it's rented already. We never could get any satisfaction. And finally, we found one place. The lady took us up to the second floor. And we were so happy because we thought, oh, well, at last we got a place to stay. But then she turned around and she says, oh, and her face just turned as red as a beet. And she says, I just remembered I rented the place. And we thought, well, uh, that's a fine big lie. A man they met took pity on Peggy and Pat and invited them to share his apartment. But as soon as his landlady found out, she gave all of them 24 hours to leave. Meanwhile, the WRA was hoping Peggy had good news it could share with Japanese Americans back in camp. The government continued to encourage the so-called loyal prisoners to move out of camp. They kept calling me because they wanted to take a picture of me so they could send it back to the camp saying what a wonderful place Chicago was and how nice it was to be out and relocated. So I told them the next time they called me, I said, I'm being thrown out of the apartment, so come and take a picture of that. 
By the end of 1944, nearly half of the Japanese-American prisoners had left the camps. More than 60,000 remained behind barbed wire. At that time, the Supreme Court was preparing to issue a decision that could allow many of them to go free. The ruling would say that the government could not continue to detain citizens during wartime unless it could prove that they were disloyal. The War Department had already told President Roosevelt there was no longer a military justification for the camps. But legal scholar Peter Irons said that FDR didn't want to end the incarceration before elections that fall. Even though the war was effectively over in the sense that there was no possible chance of a Japanese attack on the West Coast and therefore no danger from any of the Japanese Americans, they would put off ending the camps and closing them until after the presidential and congressional elections in November of 1944. We don't want anybody to charge us with being soft on Japs. If we let them out before the election, our opponents may say, the war is not over officially, these people might pose a danger, and you let them out. The White House was tipped off that the Supreme Court ruling would be announced on December 18, 1944. So the day before, the government lifted the order excluding people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. At the start of 1945, the so-called loyal Japanese Americans were allowed to return home. And as those people were released from camp, they were pretty much on their own. You know, the government was offering only minimal assistance to Japanese Americans as they left. Eric Muller is a historian and legal scholar. He says the main support the government gave the people leaving camp was $25 and a one-way ticket. They could take a bus or a train to the destination of their choice. So it wasn't much. They were pretty much put out of the camps and told, go make a life. I remember very vividly the three of us sitting on the train, carrying my mother's ashes. This is Chizuku Norton. She left the Tule Lake incarceration camp in July 1945. Her mother had died in camp and had been cremated. Chizuko took a train home to Seattle with her sister and father. And what we discussed was not where we would live and what we would do, but what we were going to eat. Chizuko and her family had no idea how they would rebuild their lives after three years of imprisonment but they had something more immediate on their minds. This is going to be their first meal as free people. They wanted to savor it. And we were hoping that it would be breakfast so we could have, uh, you know, waffles and ham and eggs and that kind of thing. Even for the families who got to return to their homes, it wasn't clear what would be waiting for them. When they were sent to the camps, many people of Japanese ancestry had to sell their farms, businesses, and belongings for pennies on the dollar. A lot of folks made arrangements to store what they could in the closet of an apartment, in a church basement, or in someone's storage shed. Others entrusted the care of their land or home to neighbors. Some Japanese Americans came home to find what they'd left behind was still there, but many others came home to a shock. 
their belongings were gone, their property destroyed, or the apartment they thought they owned had been sold. Going into camp was a piece of cake compared to coming out. Toshi Nagamori Ito grew up in Los Angeles. She was 18 when she and her parents were incarcerated at Heart Mountain in Wyoming. Coming out was so stressful, especially for the Issei. Issei is the Japanese term for first-generation immigrants, the people who came to the United States from Japan. Before the war, federal law barred them from becoming U.S. citizens. Still, many Issei had managed to build prosperous farms and small businesses, but most of them lost all of that when they were ejected from the West Coast. They had no money, no job, no place to go. Theoretically, Toshi's parents did have a place to go and a way to make a living. Before incarceration, Toshi's father sold life insurance from an office in Little Tokyo. Her mother and father also owned a home, which they rented to one of his co-workers while they were imprisoned. They stored their car with a friend, but there were problems as soon as they got back to L.A. The family that rented our home wouldn't move out, and so my parents went to the sheriff and had them evicted. And in the meantime, they, they got out, but they vandalized some of our furniture before they left. The renters, who were white, didn't stop there. They had nails strewn across our driveway, and they had a big sign, no Japs. Other white people sent the same message. The grocery stores in our neighborhood knew we were Japanese, so they told my mother, we don't sell to Japs. So my mother had to take a bus and a streetcar and go to Grand Central Market in Los Angeles, near Chinatown, to hopefully pass for a Chinese woman to buy her groceries. And she would go down there once a week with two great big shopping bags and bring back the food for the week. The Itos were hardly alone in the racism they faced when they got back to the West Coast. Brian Nia is the content director of Denshaw. That's the organization that collected most of the oral histories used in this podcast. He says many Japanese Americans were terrorized by whites, especially in rural areas. Returning families had their homes and farms vandalized, uh, fires were being set. There was this rash, what were what at the time were called night riders, where people were driving by and shooting at the houses uh, uh, at night. Fortunately, somewhat miraculously, no one was uh, killed in these incidents. Beyond facing racial hostility, returning Japanese Americans were often homeless. Many had been renters when they were forced into camp. There was a severe housing shortage when they returned. Shelters were established up and down the West Coast where families could stay temporarily. There are stories of people living in chicken coops at judo schools and old farm sheds. These people were poor. They had no place else to go. Naomi Hirahara is a writer. She recently co-wrote a book about Japanese Americans resettling after being imprisoned at Manzanar in California. And so many of those people stayed in trailer parks, former military barracks, and they were living in 
structures that were very similar to what they were living in in places like Manzanar. Returning Japanese Americans often had to be creative to find housing. That was the case for Bacon Sakatani. He was 14 years old when his family left Heart Mountain. We had no place to stay, and so my father got an army squad tent, which is, I don't know, a very small, 12 feet by 12 feet or something like that. He put it up in the backyard of our former uh, landlord right across the street from where we used to live. Decades after leaving Heart Mountain, Bacon Sakatani gets choked up as he recalls his family's early months of survival. After camp was the worst part of my experience. For those still living in the camps, the prospect of leaving became more and more daunting. One of the really sort of surprising and, at the surface level, confusing things about the year 1945 is that the Japanese Americans that remained in the camps at that point, many of them didn't want to leave. According to Eric Muller, it's not that the Japanese Americans enjoyed being incarcerated, but the outside world seemed threatening. Anti-Japanese propaganda was particularly virulent during the war. In this atmosphere, camp offered a measure of security. You know, they had a roof over their head and they were getting meals. And that was not something that they were had any assurance of on the outside. And so, paradoxically, the War Relocation Authority really had to sort of put the screws to the community to get them to leave. They had to start shutting operations down. They had to start shutting down mess halls. They had to start eliminating employment. As far as I can remember, we were the last family to leave Topaz. It was like a ghost town. This is Ted Nagata. Topaz was in Utah and closed in October 1945. Ted was 10 years old when he and his family took a train to Salt Lake City. And I can distinctly remember stepping over the tracks and then sitting on these long benches inside the depot. And... I kind of asked my dad, uh, where are we going? And he had no idea. All Ted's father had was $25 from the government. That was meant to support Ted, his parents, and his older sister. Eventually, we ended up in a tenement room. I mean, it was only 10 feet by 10 feet. It had a gas stove because I remember my dad would cook uh, chicken noodle soup in there. And we had a lady that would come in every week and check on us. And later, uh, I was to find that she was a social worker and we were a welfare family. Ted's mother had a breakdown in camp. So Ted's father was essentially raising Ted and Carol on his own. As he worked to resettle the family, he placed Ted and Carol in a Catholic orphanage. The children lived there for about a year until his father was able to find a job and afford a home. Ted's mother was a U.S. citizen. He says she never recovered from what the government did to the Japanese Americans. My mother had a very hard time in Topaz and uh, the stress of 
incarceration and being called the enemy and why was the government doing to this? She was a college person, so she knew her rights, and it just affected her to the point where she couldn't carry on. So my mother was a, a real casualty of Topaz, and I'm sure there were many others, too. Ted was right. There were many other casualties of Japanese-American incarceration. This was especially true for the Issei generation, who were still barred from citizenship. Frank Yamasaki's father was one of them. My father was in his 70s. We lost everything, and now we have to start all over again. We last heard from Frank Yamasaki in Chapter 3 when he was adjusting to imprisonment at the Puyallup Assembly Center in Washington. Frank wound up resisting the draft and serving time in a federal prison. When he returned home to Seattle, it was painful to watch his father trying to make a new life. Frank's father went by the nickname Yama. He returned to his factory job when he got back home. Before the war, Yama had worked for years as a foreman there. He even trained the boss's son. And I remember one day when he came home, his face was just like a sheet, white as a sheet. The boss told Yama that things had changed at the factory since wartime. And I guess the boss says, uh, Yama, you stay home, you know. In other words, Yama was fired. He found a job washing dishes in a restaurant, but Yama was never the same. He built the business for the company, you might say, and so when he was told to stay home, you know, it just it really killed him. He died. In Los Angeles, Toshi Ito's father was also shut out of his old job. She says the company where he sold life insurance refused to take him back. They wouldn't hire him to do anything. He offered to... Uh, do some bookkeeping for them because he was so good at figures, but they said no. Toshi's father became more and more agitated as he failed to find work. In May of 1945, Toshi got married and moved with her husband to Minneapolis. Nine days later, she got a telegram. Her father was very sick. Toshi needed to come home. She was met at the train station in Los Angeles by a close family friend. And she said to me, I have a very sad message to give you. And she told me that my father had taken his life. And she said my mother would be in the car. So it was a very sad homecoming. Toshi says her father couldn't find a job, but he was too proud to go on welfare. Being a life insurance agent, he knew that and the, the insurance company would pay my mother because he had even paid the premiums when he was in camp. I know he sacrificed his life for my mother. People of Japanese ancestry made profound sacrifices during the time they were incarcerated and after. They lost their homes, they lost their businesses, they lost their belongings, and they lost loved ones. Many lost something else as well, their Japanese identity. I came to this decision that uh, whenever I get out of here, I'm not going to be Japanese anymore. Mei Sasaki was five when she and her family were incarcerated at Minidoka in Idaho. Up until the time I had gone into camp, everyone referred to me with my uh, Japanese name, which was Kimiko. Uh -huh. But I began to sense that it was because I was Japanese 
that I was in this camp because I looked around and we're all Japanese. So I never said anything to anyone, but I remember that near the end, uh, when we were ready to leave, when people would call me Kimi-chan, I would pretend not to hear them. And I figured that's the way I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be Kimiko anymore. I'm going to be Mei. People of May's generation found other ways to hide their Japanese ancestry. Some of them stopped speaking the language. Others went in a different direction. They were so bitter and disillusioned that they renounced their U.S. citizenship. Some gave up their citizenship to protest American injustice. Others did it to remain with their parents who wanted to return to Japan. These elders had come to believe that the U.S. would never truly welcome them. For most Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II, recovering from the experience would be a long, slow process. After camp, many didn't talk about it. They chose to put it behind them. But years later, a movement started to build. Japanese Americans began to demand that the United States government apologize for the incarceration and pay reparations. Unless this great country of ours can acknowledge that grave injustices done to so many of us, American citizens of Japanese ancestry, and make some form of reparation, there cannot be a healing of the invisible wounds that we bear so painfully. That's in the next chapter of Order 9066. Please help us spread the word about this series by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat Suzuki. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Chris Julin. The theme music is by Genji Suraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Baumhart, Andy Cruz, Hannah Mariyama, and Emerald O'Brien. Mixing by Veronica Rodriguez. This podcast is a collaboration with the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanafuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Densho. You can find much more about Order 9066 and its legacies at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can see photos of objects listeners have sent in that show their connection to the incarceration. We have links to in-depth resources and to the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. That's apmreports.org. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media. Mm-hmm.